Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is a free program. All episodes are available for free. More than 500 episodes, all available free of charge. There is an official Other People app. That too is free. It's all free. So I count on the support of listeners to help keep things rolling. If you would like to support this show, if you like the show and you want to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Liston. Just one person at just one Hey, everybody, how's it going? (laughs) Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Liston. I'm here in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. I have a good show for you today. Troy James Weaver is on the program. Troy James Weaver, he's got three names. It's like an assassin, right? Troy James Weaver, don't all assassins have three names? Am I on to something here? Is Troy James Weaver a dangerous man? He has a new novel out. It's called Temporal. It's available from Disorder Press. Troy James Weaver and I in conversation in just a second. I had a very good time talking with him from his home in Kansas. So just a minute ago, as I was scrambling to put together a monologue, I asked people on Twitter if there was anything in particular they would like me to address in this monologue. And uh, Amira Gonzalez says, yeah, I have a question. Would you rather that the Mission Impossible theme song play at an uncomfortably loud volume every time you enter a room, or would you prefer that Wolf Blitzer watches you from a distance of no more than 12 inches every time you have sex or masturbate? I mean, if I'm being honest, I would, I would have to go with the Mission Impossible theme song. Just because, you know, like Wolf Blitzer at 12 inches? That's really close. That's, a, that's an invasion of personal space. I mean, it would be an invasion of personal space, you know, if he was in the room. But to be 12 inches or less? That's too close. Darren Peterson or Darren Patterson says, uh, did you see Black Panther? No. And I have no plans to see Black Panther. I don't, I really don't like comic book movies. 
or like I like them in small doses, but like this barrage of never ending comic book movies that were hammered with by the major movie studios. Uh, I feel like it's part of this larger trend of infantilizing adults in this country. Uh, maybe, you know, people will call me a snob. People might say that I'm a, you know, that I'm uh, no fun. I, I just don't give a fuck about comic book movies. Star Wars. I mean, there's a little bit of Star Wars nostalgia for me just because when I was a kid, I liked those movies, but I was a kid. And uh, yeah, every once in a while, go see like a fantastical comic book movie or some sort of superhero thing. But I feel like that's all that there is, and it pisses me off. And I worry that, in, you know, that adults, like whatever happened to movies for adults? I know they exist. I know they exist, but I just feel like all this energy and money is put into building this like comic book movie culture for adults. Enough already. But it, I guess it makes money. People love this stuff. They want to escape. They want to feel like children. I don't know what it is, but I'm anti. And in the same breath, I, I should say... I'm very glad that Black Panther is uh, out there and doing well from the perspective of representation. I think it's fantastic that we have finally a superhero movie or a comic book movie that features African-American actors and that, you know, uh, young African-American kids are seeing themselves reflected on screen in these kinds of movies. I think that's really important. I get that. I'm all for it. But I'm, you know, as a viewer personally, I don't care. Jesse Sawyer says, uh, I want you to talk about the ways in which we compromise ourselves just a little bit at a time without noticing. That is until certain moments wherein it is quite clear and yet possibly too late to do anything. Either that, or I would like you to address the sex act of pegging. <laughs> is it, is it weird that I don't know what pegging is? Let me Google this. What the fuck is pegging? Pegging. What is it like to play the role of a penetrator as a woman? What is it like? We spoke with two anonymous women about pegging, a gender-flipping sex act. Hang on, I'm going to Cosmopolitan. Pegging is a dynamic flipping sex act in which a woman has anal sex with a man via a strap-on dildo. Oh, okay. All right. Um, you know, the ways in which we compromise ourselves, I'll try to do both the ways in which we compromise ourselves just a little bit at a time without noticing that is until certain moments wherein it is quite clear and yet possibly too late to do anything. That's a tragic human circumstance that I think affects most everybody, right? Does anybody really die without regrets? Very few people. I think most of us are doing the best we can in life, but we're making mistakes. We're confused. We're sad. We're struggling. We're happy. You know, it's like this big mix of things. It's hard to keep track of everything. It's hard to function uh, in a way that always adheres to our highest ideals. It's hard to even know what those ideals are supposed to be sometimes. Life is hard. And uh, I think, though, when it comes to trying to limit these kinds of regrets and trying to limit uh, circumstances in which we might be at the point of no return, where it's too late to do anything, I think that that's where, at least for me, uh, like meditation comes in, like trying with mixed results to stay as awake as possible in my life. If I do that, if I'm like awake or semi-awake in my life more of the time, statistically speaking, then I think I'm less prone 
to make micro decisions and micro judgments or whatever, micro behaviors that as they accrue could potentially put me in peril. But yet I still fuck things up all the time. I mean, I have regrets that uh, I don't even know if there are statute of, limita- uh, statute of limitations for, you know, like maybe the, I think I'm probably going to always regret them. I mean, not, like, it's, not like I sh- it's not like I've killed somebody, but you know what I'm saying? There are things that I'm just like, oh, if I could just have that moment back, if I could just have a do-over. I think that's a very human thing. I've just got to accept, accept my life in the moment as if I had chosen it, doing the best I can. Oh, speaking of doing the best I can, I got a uh, a letter from a listener and I couldn't, I was trying to track it down. It might've come to me via social media in my mentions and I just, it got bumped down and I lost track of it. But a listener was asking me about my decision to uh, stop having a glass of wine at night. This is going, going back to like mid-November. I talked about it on the show. I was in this like austerity mode. I was talking about my son River who was born with some challenges and I was like, you know what? I just want to live in this austere way. I don't want to have any painkillers, nothing. I'm just going to like live, like, you know, live life and like, confront life without any kind of uh, mediation. Not that I was never going to have a glass of wine again, but I just wasn't going to sit at home at night on a nightly basis and like have a glass of wine with my dinner. Uh, I've started having glasses of wine with dinner again. A listener was wondering, uh, and like it just recently, maybe I'll go back. It like, to me, it was like, it's hard to know exactly how to feel about it because it was no, it wasn't really that big of a deal to begin with. I was never heedless in my consumption, but I was like ritualized in my consumption. So is one, you know, they always say one or two glasses of wine at night is uh, kind of good for you. That's all I was doing. I'm not a person that doesn't have an off switch. So it wasn't like this perilous thing. It was more just like trying to be, I don't know, as wise as possible or something or as Buddhist as possible or something. I hope I'm not making some terrible micro decision that I'm going to regret later on. Uh, Am I on my way to the point of no return? Am I going to get to a point at which I can look in the rearview mirror and see this decision as fateful and tragic? Maybe I'll go back to it. I don't know. I do think it's interesting that I made the decision to, uh, you know, live in this more austere way right around mid-November of last year and that the, the phase or the period of, uh, of austerity lasted until mid, uh, February. So mid November to mid February, when I reflect and I think back to November of 2016, I quit Twitter right around, uh, right around then. As some of you may recall my complicated relationship with social media, which is also a ritualized compulsive behavior or whatever. So that period of austerity, that period of no social media lasted from mid-November to mid-February. So I have these parallel experiences. Maybe it's the time of year, you know, the holidays, everybody turning inward, getting reflective. As for pegging, you know, this is not something I've thought about at all. I didn't even know what it was until like, what, two minutes ago. So like like anything with sex, my attitude is if you like it and you're with your partner, and your partner likes it, go for it. Do whatever you want. I don't care. You know, it's like, what is it? I'm reading this interview on Cosmo. I've tried pegging with my partner. He's definitely serious. I'd also be open to trying it with casual relationships. We're poly, and sometimes we play with others. See, I'm so boring. I feel like I'm a boring person sexually. 
all these people poly, like they're like poly and they have strap-ons and like I'm just like and that's a lot of work you got to get gear you got to keep it clean like rubbing alcohol what what do you do how do you keep, eh, you know it's a lot of work but if it's if it's your thing go for it you like to peg people <laughs> What else? What else do people want to know? Joey Grantham, publisher of uh, Temporal at Disorder Press. Uh, He wants me to address his job interview tomorrow at City Lights. Wish me luck, he says. Good luck, Joey. I feel like City Lights, City Lights, if you're listening, if you don't hire Joey Grantham to work in your store, you're a fool. It's like the perfect bookstore employee. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So that's it. Let's get to the interview, shall we? Shall we do this? Troy James Weaver is my guest. His novel is called Temporal. It is available now for, from uh, Disorder Press. Very pleased to have him here on the podcast for the first time. This is Troy James Weaver. My dad worked at the post office for 35 years um, as a clerk. Um, my mom uh, kind of, well the first memory I have of, of her working was just like daycare stuff. Um, she'd have all the neighborhood kids over and, uh, get paid for it basically. And, uh, then she, she worked for Kroger for a little bit. It's a, yeah, like a grocery store. Yeah. I grew up with, Um, I grew up with Kroger in Indiana, so I know Kroger. Yeah. And, uh, she worked part-time there and then she worked as a para for a couple of years out of, out of, uh, maze where I went to school and, uh, wait, she worked as a what? Uh, para, What's like a para professional, like, uh, like basically like someone that just helps the teachers, like if they need anything. Oh, right. Right. So, um, she did that for a couple of years and then, uh, she worked for, the half price store, which became uh, Gordman's, for like fifteen years. Um, but yeah, I I grew up on like West Wichita, so it was like kind of uh, a little more sparse um, than than getting closer to the city. Um, 
kind of like a suburb, you know. Uh, like, did you grow up? On, to, did you grow up on a lot of land? Like, was there? You know, were you in the middle of nowhere? I mean, it wasn't like in the middle of nowhere, but uh, yeah. I mean, if I went a mile up the road uh, from my neighborhood, there was just fields and uh, trees and and you know, like little ponds to fish in. Um, but now all of that's gone, you know, because they 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 just kept building and building and building. And I went to school in a different town in in Mays, Kansas. It's about like seven miles north of Wichita and it was a little farm community. Um, and now it's just part of Wichita basically. So why did you go to school up there? Was there some reason or is that just like the district you were in? It was, yeah, it was just the boundaries were, it was kind of weird because, uh, the boundary lines for where you're going to go to school. Uh, I had a high school, uh, Northwest. It was about, uh, two miles from my house, but the way the boundaries were set up, I had to go to the school, out in the country so it's kind of weird now but, what was it like uh like culturally in your house like did you uh did you grow up with religion or anything like that i mean that is sort of the bible belt isn't it oh yeah um uh i grew up uh mormon actually uh my mom is is still still mormon uh and my one of my older sisters still is but everybody else kind of you know <laughs> got out of that and found their own paths but um, well, that's interesting because I, I just had a, another Mormon author, um, still Mormon, like on the show. I haven't had that opportunity too many times. I think it's just a couple times. But oh, what, yeah? what I haven't read, like, yeah, like one of the authors I, uh, I spoke with, she wrote a memoir about growing up. Like she was in Mexico, like in, in one of oh, those yeah. Mormon, uh, like a Mormon ashram <laughs> with like uh-huh. polygamy and the whole thing. You know, it's like the. Oh, man. You know what I'm talking about, so like, like hard- yeah, yeah, like so, like the fundamentalist, like right, like the hardcore, yeah. And so that was one, and then uh, there's Ruth Werner, and then I just talked to Tim Workus, and he, uh, you know, he had the more like Salt Lake City suburb traditional Mormon thing going on, and uh, was still doing it. But I have not talked to anybody whose family, uh, you know, had a, a like a, a Mormonism in it, but then you know, there are certain people in it that are still in it and then others decided to splinter off. Like, is that a source of any tension or is it, is it an amicable parting? Um, I think it was amicable. I mean, like, uh, I don't know. We, my family is just like the, you know, uh, I guess like the Salt Lake city version, um, like the LDS Latter-day Saints, um, kind of mormonism um i personally like quit going to church when i was like 13 yeah i I was i was raised catholic i was that way too like i had an early break yeah and you know like at first my my folks were not into it uh you know because you're 13 they want you to do what they're doing and uh but they came around pretty quick i mean i just flat out told them I didn't really believe it, you know, and, uh, why, <laughs> and, and what, uh, why was it? What was your why at 13? Do you remember? Well, uh, yeah, there was a couple things. Like I just, there's this like idea that in, in Mormonism that, you know, if you're like good and righteous and all this shit that you're gonna, you know, when you die, like if, if you're like a super holy person, like you'll be – you'll lord over like your own planet basically. <laughs> and I just thought that was – even at 13, I just thought that 
uh, you know, I can't buy into this. It just sounds it's like a stupid sci-fi movie or something. Right. And then and then uh, also they do this thing called bat- baptisms for the dead. And uh I actually took part in one. We drove down to Dallas, Texas to one of the Mormon temples and uh it just felt very uh cultish to me and strange that we were uh and wrong, like ethically, like uh, basically what it is is converting people that were not Mormon that are who, no longer on this earth. Um, how does into, that, how does that into, work? Into Mormons. You huh. basically uh, like, all right, you, you dress in all white and you have to have like white undergarments and uh, all this, you know, culty kind of stuff. And uh, there was uh, – the way it was set up at this temple, you go into this big white room and there's a huge um, basin, you know, a baptismal font. And they, they do total body submersions in this thing. And uh, it was held up by these huge statues of ox, like oxen. And uh, it was just real weird. You walked over this little kind of bridge thing and then you get into the water. And, and, you, person, and you're dressed in all white? Yeah, you're dressed in all white. Yeah, isn't that like then you get out? Isn't it kind of like see through? <laughs> my, am my. It is okay. It is, and that's the kind of the funny thing is like, uh, you know, you're supposed to wear like white all the way through, like uh, you know, your undergarments. This is embarrassing, but it, it's totally true and and funny now that I'm older. But uh, my mom had packed my 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 bags, you know, before I went on this thing, and. Uh, uh, for some reason, she she only packed uh, underwear that were purple. They were like purple, <laughs> like you know, yeah. version of like whitey tidies, you sure. know. And uh, and uh, that's what I had to wear. <laughs> I was like hoping no one would would see through it. But yeah, so I got out, and then later everyone was like, "Oh my god, what were you thinking, man?" <laughs> but. <laughs> I got teased pretty hard about it. So, but, you, uh, so you jump in this water, but then I just—I still don't get how you're baptizing dead people. Like, what is that? Like, you don't—they they don't just have... like they like they like read their names, tell you like when they died, kind of a little bit about their life, and then they uh, they dunk you underwater as though you are like that embodiment embodiment of the person. Um, do they do? They do, do, they, do they do it with permission? Is there permission, like from the like? Is this like something that's requested by the survivors? No. So it's no, like, and it's, that's that's why I was like, you know, at that age, I was driving back. We were coming back, and I was just like, I don't. Know, this feels wrong. You're like, <laughs> you know? I think this is like necrophilia. This is weird. You know, there's something. Yeah. Like, Jesus, and you know, you you were saying earlier too about the afterlife and lording over your own planet, and um, you know, I don't want to like, I don't think it's. Uh, I'm not picking on Mormonism specifically because I was raised Catholic and I know that there's all sorts of mythology and Catholicism that's like equally ridiculous on its face where you're just like, come on, you know, like, and I think that a lot of people who are believers, uh, cause like I have family members who still practice. My parents still go to church every Sunday and, uh, oh, yeah. you know, all sorts of family members and, and they're pretty, pretty rational people. And they either, I feel like they overlook that stuff in a way that I never could. Like, they're just like, oh, right. yeah, you know, that's just part of it. And, well, you know, I don't know how seriously to take it, but maybe we'll lord over a planet and maybe we won't. And, you know? <laughs> right, right. And I'm like, well, wait, wait, wait. This is a deal breaker for me. Like, what are we even talking about here? This is insane, you know? like Totally. 
No, oh, yeah, exactly. Like my wife's a Catholic. Uh, you know, she goes to mass every week, uh, and she actually is a fifth grade Catholic school teacher as well. You know, and uh-huh. we have completely opposite views on on all that stuff. And but you know, uh, one of the things I've come to realize about mo- a lot of Catholics I've come across is. You know they're pretty they're pretty rational people aside from those beliefs you know and uh, you know she believes a lot of the same things I believe as far as uh, you know politics and and law you know she has common sense <laughs> but yeah I, okay so kinda... so let's let's work through this then like why yeah. it's like people want to stay inside of these organizations or inside of these organized traditions because. Uh, they find a lot to like in there. There's like a sense of comfort derived from the tradition and the ritual and the sense of community. Right. And there are also uh, within, uh, you know, uh, like th- there's a lot of weird, uh, you know, hard to believe mythology to say the least, but there are uh, also, uh, you know, stories and uh, like teachings that have real deep truth in them. That's basically right. it. And so they're just willing to tolerate. I, I don't know. You know, like I've always... I, I, I... I'm with you. Like I don't, I don't get it either. But I kind of, you know, I'm just like, well, you know, it's not really intruding on my life in any kind of way. So, you know, if that's what you believe, like that's fine with me. Yeah. But I, I, I agree. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff. I, I. That's what I told my wife. You know, is like, you know, I could never really convert to something I don't 100% like believe you know yeah there's a lot of good stuff in there but like you know I just can't all all the little you know fables and stuff it's hard to choke down well yeah and also like you know women can't be priests and gay people can't get married and like I you know I start to find myself at odds uh, on issues like that that make it also difficult to engage with but I feel like the, the moral teachings that we're talking about, like you can get those independent of that structure. You know, it's like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like you don't have to join an organization right. to sign up for that, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. I agree 100%. Uh, like, okay. Well, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to like litigate it. I just, you know, I find it interesting and we come from similar part of the country. And uh, I'm wondering if... Uh, like you have anything in your life, like absent this, that you've used to like replace it, like, or are you just kind of like a free agent? Uh, I consider myself a free agent. You know, I think, uh, you know, I contradict myself a lot, which I think is healthy. Um, oh, good. Because you know what I mean. Like, I, 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 I don't like to settle on any one. Uh, fucking point of view on anything really um you know one week i'm like oh i think this is right you know this is 100 percent like what i think about just in general any given thing and then the next week i'm challenged by a you know different perspective or point of view i think that's healthy but you know i have my own set fundamental guidelines you know to to live by and if if those things don't uh match up with those you know then it's kind of off the table in some ways but i think that's kind of like the problem with the world right now there's not a lot of uh, nuance with with people thinking period and also just uh how people discuss these 
you know, anything, you know, there's yeah. gotta be, there's gotta be more nuance. We use words like good and evil and, and, and bad, uh, <laughs> or great too often. And I think it's just silly. You know, and people are like often described as monsters. That one always gets me. I'm always like, don't call oh, people yeah. monsters. It's just like, you know, they're, yeah, pe- they're fucked up people maybe, but like, let's not make them into boogeymen. Right. Right. And that, I have that, that's like a huge thing for me. It's like, uh, <laughs> the way people talk about like, uh, for instance, like these, these shooters and stuff, it's like, well, if you just call them a monster, it makes everybody, you know, feel complacent with them just being a monster instead of like, uh, trying to figure out the root causes of, of, of these problems. Uh, well, that's right. No you, you, you otherize them, you know, and you, de- yeah. you dehumanize them. And in, in a weird way, it's like the inverse of what they're doing. You know, they're going around just taking lives and, you know, they, they have no respect for the humanity of the person that they're killing. And then I think by calling right. them a monster, it's, it's kind of the same thing, you know? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it makes it easier for uh, for folks to sleep at night just saying, oh, this is evil, rather than – you know, the actions are evil, definitely, but you, you got to look at the, the roots of, of, of these problems. Uh, have a little nuance in the discussion if you actually want to change anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's go back to your childhood, like growing up in Wichita, because you know, you're talking mm-hmm. about like these open fields near your place and going fishing in ponds. Like was it – yeah. Uh, was it sort of like an apple pie childhood? Did you have any difficult parts of your youth, or was it pretty, uh, pretty easy road? Um, actually, uh, it was easy going up until uh, probably I was like, uh, well, around thirteen when I when I stopped going to church. Uh, <laughs> See, maybe a little before that, you, you know. It was once like, once you strayed, everything got fucked up. Yeah. No, but you know, like, uh, my, my older, uh, brother and sister, they, they started using drugs and, and, and stuff like that. And, and not just like, you know, recreational, just, it it got out of control. And so we had a lot of issues. Um, how many, how many many siblings you have? Um, well, uh, I have three sisters and one brother. Oh, wow. Okay. So big family. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's big gaps in ages. So like my oldest sister is in her fifties. Um, and I'm 32 and Damn. I'm the youngest. Damn. Yeah. All right. So, and yeah. you, and your and so your older brother and sister get into drugs. Yeah. They, uh, they got into drugs and, and just like, uh, like with my brother, like, uh, like, you know, stealing and, all kinds, all kinds of shit, and uh, he had to go to like you know, so, like youth homes and stuff like that, like pretty early on, which was it was pretty hard to uh, see someone so young going through those kinds of things. Um, what kind of drugs? Oh, uh, well, eventually, like it became like meth, um, and pretty much everything. Uh, Everything, anything, and everything that he could get, he would get and do. But he really got addicted to meth, uh, probably around like when he was like eighteen, I would say. And, and did you say that you're the youngest? Yeah. Okay, so you're the youngest. How old are you when this is happening? Uh, well, thirteen. Okay. Yeah, around thirteen when he got really bad. Uh, 
like with the meth and stuff like that. Uh, and then how how old was your sister? Uh, she's older than him. Uh, she probably was. Uh, let me think. She was probably twenty one ish when he started doing meth. Uh, before that, it was kind of like you know he'd do acid and stuff like that, which wasn't too terrible. But he'd you know be gone for days and 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 not go to school and. <laughs> You know, or he was locked up in a juvenile facility. Damn. And your um, parents must have been freaking out. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, you know, my my dad's a, he was a great guy, uh, but he was he was a bit of a hard ass. Um, and, you know, in certain situations, I, I think they could have been dealt with better with with my brother. But um, I think parents sometimes just get free. I mean, they're scared, you know, and it's uh yeah. I mean, do, neither of your parents, I take it, are, are uh, drug users, so they're pretty straight. Are they pretty straight arrows, or? Yeah. Um, well. Uh, yeah. My mom has like never even like smoked a cigarette or anything. So she she lives that hardcore like Mormon life. Um, she drink caffeine. Uh, she didn't for a long time, but I think she does now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> after listening, after listening to this interview, she's going to start smoking. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, my, my dad smoked. Um, he actually, he passed away last year. Oh, uh, sorry about that. That's, that's all right. But yeah, from, from smoking actually. So it's kind of, uh, you know, he was, a he was, a have hardcore smoker though i mean he would go through like four packs in a day oh that's like that's like smoking while eating yeah yeah well and he would do that like when we were growing up you know it, like he would smoke while we were having dinner yeah it was just part of our lives Damn, do you <laughs> but, have do you have like any kind of respiratory issues uh I mean, probably because I myself smoke. Oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but but, but uh, uh, I've made it. I've made it my de- determination this year to to cut back and quit. So it's a bitch. It's a bitch to quit, but it's good for you. Should quit. It's a bad. You know, there's just nothing. Like I and I'm I'm hardly. Uh, I, I typically don't take a hard line on things like this, but smoking cigarettes. What do you really get out of it? I guess you get a little bit of relaxation, but it's uh, yeah. it's just a bunch of filthy smoke going into your body. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. There's like, you know, you start out because you're getting a buzz from it or whatever, and then that goes away pretty quick. Yeah. And then you're just stuck sucking terrible shit into your body that you don't even – it doesn't do anything. And just, <laughs> and, and just handing money to these corporations that, like, doctored these things to be, like, maximally addictive and – Oh yeah, yeah. Those corporations are filth, man. <laughs> Here I am supporting them because they got me hooked on this shit. <laughs> so let's go back to like your your youth. Like you go through adolescence, um, and you've got these. You know, you've got like the dark side of drugs and alcohol staring you in the face. Like you're living through that and watching your siblings go through that. Uh, like yeah. how how did that manifest for you? Like what was your response as a kid in terms of your own behavior? Uh, I had a lot of issues, uh, with anger and just, uh, cause kind of, you know, when you're going through something like that and, and especially when you're the youngest and you're, I, I was trying to be a good kid, you know, and not do the same shit they were doing. Cause I saw how 
terrible it was for my parents. Um, but like a lot of times, you know, you feel like you're hung out to dry. Like a lot of times, like I would have to go to a friend's after school, you know, because they had to go to like a group meeting, you know, like AA and NA, um, and they didn't want me to go, you know, which is understandable. Uh, but eventually, uh, they started bringing me along to some of these things cause they wanted like the whole family. Uh, I don't know what kind of group it was, but you know, so I started going, but I was like super shy and I didn't want to talk about my issues and how I felt. So usually I just sit there silently, you know, and, and not say anything, but it, it did manifest in, in, uh, anger and, and, and violence at some points. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, the most popular kid ever, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I started kind of lashing out if, if people picked on me or anybody else around me, I kind of took it out on them and, and, uh, it was, it was bad. You know, I went to anger management briefly and that helped me out quite a bit, but really. Okay. So what could set you off? Like somebody said, just like says the wrong thing to you and then you just haul off and punch them. Well, I mean, kind of, yeah. I mean, some of it, it, it teetered. Um, if I if I made an observation of, of somebody giving somebody a hard time at school, I I, I would go up and and get in their face and, and start some shit. And uh, it half the time didn't have to be that way. Uh, so I, I recognize it as a problem. My parents did. I got suspended a few times and, uh, you know, I can honestly say, you know, I haven't felt those, those problems since I, uh, was probably like 17 or 18. I, I dropped out of school when I was 16. Um, kind of because of all those issues coming to, you know, uh, just my family stuff kind of coming out at school um it, it got rough and i uh i kind of was called to the counselor one day and they they said well you know you haven't really attended much and you've had all these problems uh you know so you can either like have your parents come in and sign this so you can go to this alternative school or you can like drop out you know well you have to drop out to go to alternative school anyway so um i told my my parents like yeah i'd go to the alternative school and then uh i never ended up going i ended up getting a ged but uh it was it was a strange time i can't even really i don't even no, if I've worked through it all in my head. Well, no, I was gonna—I was just gonna ask you because you mentioned going to anger management uh, classes or whatever, which I assume were forced upon you. This wasn't something you like elected to do, right? No, no. So, yeah, did, did that, you did you learn anything there? Like, were you able? Was it able uh, to help you articulate what was going on? Uh, honestly, at that point, no. Um, it wasn't until after I was out of school uh, that I. Uh, started making changes uh, and kind of a lot of it honestly had to do with um, my uh, you know I wasn't political at 16 but these thought processes uh, that like 
first of all, like I was raised in a house where uh, I was uh, I was encouraged to uh, if someone was giving me shit on the school bus or something to like hit them back, you know. Encouraged by whom? Uh, my dad. Okay. Um, so yeah, you were saying he was kind of a hard ass. So he's he's telling you if anybody gives you shit, you knock them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know it's the is the the nineties. I think that was more prevalent kind of then than it is now. But uh, as far as dads being like, I don't know, maybe they're still like that. But my my uh, dad, my dad told me like when we moved, I moved when I was in sixth grade, uh-huh. uh, and I remember I was getting picked on a little bit. I was a new I was a new kid. I didn't know how to like integrate, you know, and I was having trouble making right. friends at the beginning and. Somebody was messing with me, and I remember my dad just being like, "If he fucks with you, you know, like you got to stand up for yourself. You, you right. know, hit him right in the nose." <laughs> I think. I mean, I mean, my dad was not like a hard ass, but there was that one instance. I think sometimes as a parent, you're like, "What do you do? You got to tell your kid to stand up for himself." Yeah, yeah, know. definitely. And I think that was like, you know, it was before. Um, it was it was before Columbine, right? I mean, like. Uh, late nineties. And I think after that, you know, then they had these like zero tolerance, uh, policies at the schools. You know, if you got in a fight, you're probably going to get expelled. And it wasn't like that before then, you know, they would suspend you for a day or whatever. But after that, it became like expulsion, um, which is a good thing. I, I, I think, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, things changed in a weird way. It was kind of organic. Like I just stopped kind of feeling those things after I, I dropped out because that's kind of when I actually started educating myself, um, and reading, you know, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of my changes came out of, uh, that, you know, uh, my dad had Fox news on by the way, like every day. And and I kind of at a certain point believed in all that horse shit, and then <laughs> I just had a turning point when I started reading because I was like, wait, there's like people with empathy, <laughs> you know? There's <laughs> there's other things out there, like you know, you don't yeah. have to feel angry about shit all the time. And, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, like as you're talking and and uh, describing this experience, uh, you know, with. Uh, your siblings and then the the fighting and the anger at school and all that kind of stuff. Like I was reading something recently about grief and it's not necessarily just like the grief of bereavement when you lose somebody, but the grief in many forms, like grief at being uh, betrayed by a friend or grief at, um, you know, not getting a promotion or whatever it is. You know, there's all these little right. like, griefs in life, which if they're not tended to and acknowledged and dealt with in a healthy way, tend to uh, manifest in other ways. You know what I'm saying? And so like, totally, maybe yeah. that's some of it. You know, you're kind of grieving as you're watching your siblings' uh, health deteriorate and not yeah. not knowing how to help, not knowing what to do. You're 13. You don't even have the emotional equipment to process all this. And so it, right. se- it seems natural to me that there would be, you know, other areas of your life where these feelings would sort of like reconfigure themselves and emerge. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're spot on with that. Uh, but the question then becomes, because I say this as a, you know, from my own experiences, because I think everybody deals with this uh, in some form, but it's like, well, okay, so if that's true, 
then what's the healthy, proper way to deal with the griefs of life? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, like, what do you do? Like, how, what's the best? Like, what what would what would uh, constitute healthy grieving? Right, and you know, I don't. There, I don't think there's any easy answer, or even you know, an answer that's going to be a something that works for everybody. You know, I think it's all probably pretty individualized, um, with their experience. Um, I'm sure there's like, you know, books on, on that and how to better deal with those things. And they're probably helpful. Um, or maybe, maybe maybe as writers, we write about it. Maybe that's what it is. Like I, I, I've been coming, um, I've been doing like working on book forever and, a lot of it has to do with grief. And then recently I opened up this file and uh, it's like 900,000 words. I've been tweeting about this, but it's basically this collection of things that I wrote, letters, attempts at a novel. It's basically like everything I wrote from the ages of like 21 to 25. And it's true. It's terrifying. It's like, I'm like reading it and I'm going like, God, like I was, a f- I was messed up. Like, you know, you read yeah. you read your old thoughts and your and all this stuff that you know you uh, were telling yourself. And uh, I don't know. Not only is the writing really bad in places, but it's also like <laughs> I don't know. I, the The feeling is just like one of like deep humiliation almost. Which I, I don't know if is necessarily the right <laughs> right response, but it's like I'm reading about somebody else, you know, and he's not doing very well. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, uh, I know I my wife found a bunch of old shit. I wrote like, you know, uh, probably when I was like 18 through 21 and we were looking at her, I was just like, throw that shit away. Yes. <laughs> I don't even want to look at it. Yeah, it's, but it's like, <laughs> but okay. And I have the same, like the, the, the impulse is to turn away and, and to want to delete it and like, make sure it never sees the light of day. Uh, part of the problem is that a lot of these were letters that I wrote. So like my friend, my friends may have copies. This stuff might be in circulation (laughs) and then you, yeah, it's like, great. I, not only did I write all this stuff down, I also sent it to people. It's like a double whammy of like idiocy. But, uh, you know, I think that there's something to be gained from like confronting your, your former selves, you know what I'm saying? And like seeing, trying to get a picture of yourself clearly. Like I think part of what I'm trying to get at is that in looking at this stuff, it's made me realize that, uh, like I, uh, I might not really fully understand myself. Like I certainly didn't back then, but like, it's just given me like a whole new perspective on the various uh, griefs that I was dealing with or not dealing with. And, uh, in many cases, like, uh, you know, dealing with very badly, but, I don't know. It's like identity formation. You're sort of seeing yourself form and it's uh, it's not always a pretty process. Oh yeah, definitely. I, you know, I actually, I never thought about it that way, but I, I, I think probably all of my writing is some form of uh, me trying to figure my own shit out <laughs> rather than, uh, I'm not big on the, like, this sounds weird. I'm not one of those like, experimental writers that's like uh you know like oh i'm not big on uh you know narrative and all that shit but i usually like uh i'm more character oriented i believe uh and and kind of just let them do their own things and i think that is just me working through shit in my own mind uh 
so I think definitely uh, that's a big part of, of my process is I'm not even totally aware of it, you know, uh, when I'm doing it. But I know with, with my new book, uh, I was looking back on it and, and uh, talking to Joey Grantham about it. And I was like, holy shit, I'm like working through a bunch of my own <laughs> – my own uh, feelings, you know, through these characters. It's like, um, it's like playing with puppets or something. Yeah, and it was like, you know, this is months after I wrote the thing and, and, and didn't intend for that stuff to be in there at all. And I didn't even realize it until I, I read it months later, you know. Yeah. Um, Suddenly you, you figure out what you were doing. Yeah, I was like, what the hell? Okay. <laughs> and it, it, a lot of it is, uh, you know, kind of grief uh, stuff because um, of uh, what I was going through last year. So, Oh, with your dad? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah sure. So uh, I didn't realize those little threads had worked the, their way into the book uh, in that way, but it's very clear now, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, and so, – Here's a question I have, like both for myself and just generally, is that as if we, if we accept the if we accept the premise that writers are working through their griefs a lot of the time in their work, mm -hmm. you know, in some form or another, uh, are people who are writers do they have a tendency to have more grief experience, and then that's part of what forms them as artists, or as are, are writers like are, do all people have tons of these experiences? And right. writers are the ones who just get hung up more often or, or sit there and like want to grapple with it more than other people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I look at my own life and I'm like, wow, like I really from a young age was witness to a lot of untimely death, like young, like a, a kid dying a neighbor's mom, just like dying, dropping dead of a heart attack and a friend's dad getting hit by an airplane, like crazy stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm just like, I'm like, it was, it, I was like, is this, uh, abnormal? Did I have an abnormal childhood experience of this stuff or is it pretty run of the mill? And I'm just like fixated on it for some reason. Uh, you know, I, I've had a lot of weird experiences too, so I don't know if I would be <laughs> the one that could answer that. You know, it's like, uh, I, I think in some form, uh, everybody kind of goes through those crazy things but you know it's like i've always been fixated on 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 death and grief and and, and part of it uh, kind of started early because uh i was actually named after my uh my mom's uh cousin who who drowned when he was three years old and so that <laughs> that's a, nice, named a after nice, a, nice heavy a legacy yeah, yeah, you know, God. so, uh, uh, and when I found out about that, you know, it was just kind of like, Oh, well, holy shit, you know? Um, but yeah, then, you know, I had three, uh, yeah, people I went to school with that committed suicide. Uh, what, and, wait, uh, when, while you were in school or like in the, in the year since? No, like in, uh, no. Yeah. While we were in school, uh, freshman year, there was, uh, three people that I knew, um, not really well, but knew I was acquaintances and, and at separate times, uh, they committed suicide. And I think there's like, uh, something to be said about, uh, people say that there's like, uh, you know, if, if one person commits suicide, you got to watch like 
other people because yeah, they no, kind of like no. it's, there's like a contagion or something. No, yeah, no. I talked to uh, Jennifer Michael Hecht on this show, and she wrote a great book about suicide called Stay, I believe. Um, uh-huh. And it's an episode worth listening to because I have a friend and you know buddy of mine in college uh, took his own life. And, uh, you know, I have a kind of a deep interest in it. My first novel was about, uh, suicide grief in large part. So, uh, but it's, she definitely makes a strong case and there's actual strong, um, you know, research-based evidence that it is contagious in cultures and microcultures like school systems and stuff like that, where, you know, like I want to say in the aftermath of like Marilyn Monroe overdosing or whatever, there were like, you know, there's like a spike, you see spikes in people taking their own lives and yeah. so, something else that you said uh, as you were talking about that struck me because it resonates uh, with my own experience. And that is that, you know, these people that you went to school with who took their own lives weren't necessarily like your your best buddies, but they were, mm-hmm. pe- they were people that you knew or who you saw, even if you never talked to them all that much. And, right. yet, and yet here you are talking about their loss and it's affected you, pers- you know, really personally. And, and this is something... That's happened to me as well, where part of like my per- you know, personal uh, narrative or this mythology that, you know, you, you kind of create your own little story of your life in your head. And mm-hmm. like I, I go back to these strange losses. Like there was a girl I went to elementary school with who died of spinal meningitis, who I don't have any personal history with. Like we never played together. She was like two grades above me. I don't ever remember talking to her, but uh, I still think about her. And when she, yeah. and when she died, it like, it, it just pulverized me. Cause I was like, I was a kid, you know, and I was terrified. I was like, Oh God, this is possible. And there was a little boy in my hometown who drowned in the Creek. And it was like this, you know, this story that gets around And When you're, you know, five years old or six years old and you hear this, like it sort of thumps you in the chest, you know? And, and I still think about that kid. I can't even picture his face. You know what I'm saying? But like, I think about oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it, I, I guess like one of the things that, that I wonder about is like, like how, how much grief am I entitled to here? Like, why am I hanging on to this so tightly? And like, I guess it's a human thing, you know, and maybe it's a good thing that I, I'm feeling this and, and, you know, it, it speaks to some sort of deeper connectivity that we all have with one another. Yeah. I yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think there's two things people have in common is that they, they live and they die. <laughs> you know, those are like the universals. Um, so I don't know, I, but I, I honestly, I, I don't think everybody is, is that, uh, um, obsessive <laughs> like me and you, <laughs> like, uh, I can't say for sure, but like, I don't know. I, I know my wife has had a lot of, uh, you know, losses and and traumas but i can't say is that we think about them in the same way or even context or i don't even know if it's grief right like uh like with the three who committed suicide when i was in high school um i i think that was part of it at the time i think why it kind of it kind of sits in my mind and haunts me is is because you know uh, those are People, I mean, those people are like sitting right next to you on the bus, maybe, or like, you know what I mean? Like, this is, uh, I don't know, it just seems bigger than even the death, you know, itself. 
Well, just I don't like, even know how to. No, there's a, it's a. No, but I get it. I, it's like there's a. I think there's a sense of responsibility um, that I that I feel. Uh, I, I certainly felt it when my buddy took his own life. I was like, oh God, what did I miss? And you know, we were in college at the time and just smoking a lot of pot and just being like college kids, you know, like sort of without a care in the world and right. uh, not really feeling any great weight of responsibility, like either in terms of like uh, the world or, or maybe even to each other. And I think that's what maybe troubled me in the aftermath more than anything else. Like, not that there was anything menacing about it, but just that, that it was irresponsible. Like I, I questioned myself in the aftermath where I was like, well, God, I was so stoned. Like, what did I miss? Like, maybe I could have been paying better attention. And maybe if I would have been more awake at the wheel, I could have done something to intervene. Or maybe there were signals that I missed because I was like, you know, eating cookies or you know, <laughs> right. watching like the OJ Simpson trial or whatever the fuck we were doing back then. But like, uh, you know, it's just, I don't know. I was being a, a relatively normal college kid and you can't, you can't hold your feet to the fire too much on it because, you know, everybody pretty much missed it. You know, it wasn't just me. Um, right. and yet I internalized a lot of personal responsibility around it. And I think that that's, I don't know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like, uh, on the one hand, I think that, uh, you know, you can get to the point where you're incriminating yourself and it's unhelpful and you're kind of, you know, wallowing in guilt. But I also think that I came out of the experience with a greater sense of responsibility toward the people in my life and, and just toward other people in general. Um, so it's like, I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like, uh, I feel like both, yeah, both yeah. things are true. Definitely. I mean, I, I feel the same way. I, 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 even like uh you know after my dad passed away like did, like I felt guilty about a lot of shit um and it's just like I don't know that I, I don't think people should put that on them I mean like uh and that's just I think that's part of the, the grief is you do go through the you know guilt and uh just like what like missed opportunities things I should have said yeah, should not have yeah, said like, Maybe I should have called more, you know, right. stuff like that. But it's like, you know, not really. I mean, like, I, I don't know if that's that's something people should put on themselves. Uh, I mean, it, it is what it is at the end of the day. Um, I, I, that sounds kind of fucked up. But what I mean is, like, you can't change it. You can't change anything that happened. You can't change the course of things. Um, after, after it's done, you know? And so it's, it's, it's really hard to, to get out of this idea that, that maybe you could have done something different or, you know, and I've, I've been feeling like that a lot and I've felt like that a lot throughout my life, uh, with my brother's addictions and, you know, you always think like, well, what if I would have said this and done this? And I, I think it's kind of fruitless. It's a fruitless exercise to put that on yourself. But then again, why the fuck am I writing about this stuff? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's big, it's just big questions, you know. Guilt is a, uh, I mean, and like I, like living with regret, you know. Like I think about this all the yeah. time. I'm like, God, I'm 42 years old. I don't feel like I've accomplished anything in my life. That like, if my life were to end tomorrow, I would be like, Yeah, I, I did it. I got it done. I feel like I have so much more to do, or I have this sense of like not having realized, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, my, my potential or 
I don't know. I, I want to get better at life, I guess is what I'm saying, like in, in, in a variety of respects. And right. I guess it strikes me that it's pretty hard to like live really well, <laughs> you know, like to really get yeah. this down. Like how many people get to the end of their lives and, and are like, you know what? That was a good run. Like I did the best I can. I'm at peace. Like I, you know, I don't have very many regrets. I don't know. I don't know how many people are like that. Yeah, probably, probably very few. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. I don't know. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. I, I feel the same way. I'm like, you know, well, fucking, if I get in a car wreck tomorrow, like, how am I going to feel about my life? <laughs> you know? Right. Well, and, it, and go ahead. I think it's good. You know, it, it, it's good to feel that way though. Cause it's, it's going to challenge you to, to try to live your life to the fullest, you know? Well, I mean, and it's like, I'm, I'm in the job market right now. Like I, the company I was working for imploded. And so I'm like, I'm in this transitional phase where I'm like, okay, let's, let's reflect on what we want to do and let's make a good decision on what's next. And you know, it's like one of those periods right. of periods of change that you go through. And I keep like thinking to myself, like, it sounds corny, but like my great aspiration in life is to be wise. Like I, I want real wisdom. Like I want to, I want to do this right. And right. then I open up like that Microsoft word document that's 900,000 words long. And I start reading it and I'm like, Oh, cra <laughs> oh crap! <laughs> I am I am a very long way away from the mountaintop, you know, and it's uh it's humbling, but that's really it. And and I don't necessarily know, uh, like like there's that part of it. There's like the where I want to be and where I am part of it, and then there's also like the actual nuts and bolts, uh, occupational part of it. And a lot of times, I feel like occupational pursuits and financial pursuits are at odds with the pursuit of wisdom. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, how do you meld those two things together? Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's pretty difficult, honestly. Uh, I know when I'm at work, it's like, I'm almost brain dead. <laughs> you what, know, what, what's like, your day job? I, I work for a floral wholesale company. Uh, so we actually like, uh, sell flowers and vases to, uh, the big chain stores and retailers. Uh -huh. Um, that sounds nice. It's like a, people like flowers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's not bad, but you you got two sides of of the thing where you like you're either selling flowers for a a wedding or you're selling them for a funeral. So it's uh, kind of it can it can have its moments of being depressing, but at the end of the day, it's also a positive too if you're selling flowers for a funeral because you're just trying to make it uh, as best for people as possible, you yeah. know, you add, wanna... add a little beauty to the despair, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, but yeah, I, I find myself at work though, just kind of being, I don't know, numb, you know, you get into this robot mode, you know, kind of, um, but I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm fucking lying to you on that too. Cause, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I wrote uh, my third book almost entirely in my car at work on my lunch breaks. Yeah, you got like so, it's like the Bud Smith approach. Are you writing on your phone? No, I was writing on. Uh, we have these like little order pads that are about the size of like note cards, and I would just uh, write these things down in my car when I was eating a hamburger, <laughs> and uh, and pretty much that's. Uh, all of it, 
became that book. So, uh, and most of it deals with the. It's about a guy that works in a floral wholesale place. So, <laughs> I guess, you know. Well, I think there's something to that. Like, I feel like maybe right. Like, cause you, like, I think sometimes, like, uh, I want to say Susan Strait, who's been on this show, would write not like she'd drive her minivan away from her house, which was like chaotic. She's raising kids, and you know, uh-huh. she she lived in this like very busy household, as I recall. And she would just like get in her minivan, she said, and drive out into the desert and just like park, and just like sit at the wheel of her van and write. And then yeah. I, I remember talking to Bud, and he's like, you know, writing on his phone. Uh, at lunch break, you know, at the nuclear power plant or wherever he's working out there yeah. in, in Jersey. And then um, I just had Pontio Giannopoulos on the show. He's writing on the train, you know, and oh, yeah. on the way to work. But I think when you uh-huh. when you break it down into these little chunks of time and then also maybe when you are scribbling into like a little notepad or something instead of um, this like more. I think there's a, a formality to like opening up a Word document or something that. Yeah. That makes yeah. maybe might ratchet up the the pressure and, and put the clamps on creativity somehow. Like, do you see what I'm driving at? Like maybe by doing it that way, it freed yeah. you up. I think so. I, you know, um, I, 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 I have a hard time actually just opening a word document and, and getting stuff done. Uh, so usually I actually just write, uh, you know, with a pen and paper, uh, if, you know, and then I might go home and type that up, but, uh, that's just kind of the way I've always done it. And if I do try to just go right at it in a word document, it does, it's a little, uh, I don't know if it doesn't feel right to me. Um, maybe like I have to force it even, you know, (laughs) so there's something to be said about that. Definitely. And especially just having, um, like 30 minutes, right. You got to make sure what you're writing is like, good you know <laughs> that's what you're gonna do um you concentrate a little harder and you don't have leisure time or um you know like a tv in the other room you can go watch so and being in your car like uh, my friend melissa broder she writes her books in her car oh like, really well i and, but i mean it's to me it's it speaks to the world that we live in now where there are maybe more distractions than ever you know it's like oh yeah there's so definitely. few so few places to hide but you get in your car you're sort of at a remove you kind of like feel like you're in a little pod or something right yeah yeah the car has something to do with it also i can't i uh i love bud but i don't know how he does it because i think i would just like get on facebook or twitter or something with the phone yeah, you know, or like you get a text while you're writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh and get distracted, but oh and but I did tell Bud we were talking, he told me to tell you hi. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I talk, I talk with Bud on Twitter every once in a while. He he was he was fucking with me the other day about uh <laughs> eating with he was like in a car with like four of his coworkers. They were all eating and uh masticating loudly and anybody who's listened to this show or read my Twitter for any number of uh you know, uh, episodes or tweets or whatever knows that I have a big issue with that. Oh yeah. Like smackers. Yeah. Like, just, yeah. Just any kind of, I, if I hear you eating, it's over between us. Like, I don't want to hear anything. I can't take yeah, it. It's <laughs> fucking disgusting. I know. I, yeah. I'm the same way. Okay, good, good. Uh, you're a sane, you're a sane human being then. It's nice to know. That's right. <laughs> um, so you were talking, I mean, I want to kind of circle back a little bit yeah. because you were talking about, 
this sort of like uh, pivotal moment in your adolescence where you dropped out of school and then things started to change for you because you started to read. Uh, yeah. And that was a yeah, turning point in your life. It set, kind of set the course for a lot of uh, the most meaningful parts of your life, I would say, uh, yeah. ba based on what you're up to now. And so I'm curious, like, what what did you read in those early days after dropping out of school that started to hit home? Um, it's kind of funny because uh, my, my dad wasn't a big reader, but he had these, like, old leather-bound just – you know, classics to make the house look nice or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, I picked up like, uh, uh, Oscar Wilde, like the picture of Dorian Gray or whatever. And, uh, I honestly wasn't that into it, but I like forced myself to finish it just cause I felt like I'm not in school. I'm just sitting at home. I don't have a job right now. You know, like I got to do something, you know, productive, and I felt like that was it. And then I finished that book and I was talking to a friend about it. And, uh, and he was like, Oh man, like, well, you know, if you didn't like totally dig that, you're reading the wrong stuff. And he gave me the basketball diaries by, uh, Jim Carroll to read. And I, I just identified with a lot of what was going on in that book. You know? I was going to say, that's a perfect <laughs> so, book for you. Yeah, and I was like, I, I didn't even know you could say shit like that in books or, or be candid like that, you know. And uh, then it just kind of grew out of that, you know. And I, you know, obviously got into the obvious um, uh, choices as a teenager, you know. I was reading like Hunter Thompson and, and um, <sighs> Burroughs a little bit and kind of, you know, just those things a teenage boy would be into. Um, but yeah, over time I just, it expanded. I got into all the, you know, uh, French stuff from like the forties, like Camus and, and, uh, Sartre and, uh, read a bunch of Russian stuff like Dostoevsky, which I really enjoyed and it just hadn't stopped. And, <laughs> so know? at what point did you say to yourself, I'm going to write? Like, did you ever go to college? Uh, I went uh, I went briefly for a semester at a community college uh, out here. Um, and uh, I was working two jobs at the time, and I just couldn't I, – I was too exhausted for school, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I was trying – I was paying out of pocket. Uh, I didn't want to take out loans or anything. And that was my experience with college. And also I wanted to go for like, you know, writing and stuff and, and I just realized like maybe you don't need that, you know. Yeah. Uh, smart. You can teach yourself how to how to write. Um but yeah, so briefly I went to college. It was not that fun. Was it in was it in Wichita? It was actually out uh it's called Butler County. Uh, Butler County Community College, and it was in uh, uh, Augusta, which is about 15 miles from uh, Wichita. Okay. And so you, you make the decision at that point. Like, I guess so at that point you're thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write. I just, I'm not going to go to college for it. I'm going to teach myself. Yeah. And yeah. So, so did and, you did you undertake a side – I mean, did you undertake some kind of like uh, – did you did you systematize it? Like I'm gonna read X. Like do you know what I'm saying? Did you give yourself a curriculum or did you just sort of like live your life 
in a literary way and it was kind of a looser approach yeah um I didn't really uh, cherry pick what I read so much like I had before. Uh, so I just kind of read uh, whatever came my way. I even read some like Dan Brown at one point just because I was like, well, it's not very good, but, you know, it's going <laughs> to teach me how to be a little better. Um, no, I think but, I think I think you learned from that. I mean, you know, there's something reson- yeah. there's something about it that's resonating with people. And, uh, you know, even if it's not, even if it's not for you, like, I, I think it's, right. it's like, it's like 50 shades of gray. Like, why did that take off? Like, yeah. What the hell's know. going on? I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty weird, especially considering how abusive that relationship really is. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> especially, yeah, like, especially in this cultural moment, you know, that like, there's all this yeah. talk about, uh, men needing to check themselves and, and women rising up and like, you know, I'm all for it. But then like, it's like at the same time it gets confusing because like 50 shades of gray is this like massive cultural phenomenon. And there's yeah. like one copy of those books in like, like one out of three American households. And it's about like a sadomasochist. I mean, I haven't read it, but I, I sort of get the, it's about like a sadomasochistic relationship where like the guys like tor- torturing this woman or you know not torturing yeah. her but right <laughs> yeah i mean that's it i mean it's it's all about him controlling a woman and she really didn't sign up for it until she signed up for it i guess but then i think but doesn't she flip the script like by the end of it he's like like eating you know or like uh he's like gotten he's gotten fully on board and it's like a love relationship i don't know yeah, I mean, but that's kind of like why it's so sick, right? <laughs> it's like this brainwashing technique. I, I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't read it either. But it, it, it uh, ladies, ladies and ladies and gentlemen, listening, this is uh, two men breaking down Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, neither, neither of us having read the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the concept, you know. Yeah, seems absurd, but maybe so- I should read it and then give my opinions then but. i would i want to talk to the i want to what is it el james i want to have her on the yeah. show like i don't think she would ever do it but i would i would love to have uh i want to talk about that like where does this come from i think it was like it was like fan fiction it was fan it was fan fiction and it was like you know erotica right it was like bad erotica and then it just caught on people just couldn't yeah. get it I, I don't understand uh and maybe yeah. like you, you got to wonder too like like a guy like dan brown like he, these books that become like these, you know, viral sensations. I don't think people even know why. It's like some weird, like cosmic, like collect, yeah, collective consciousness. Like it's working on some weird level, you know, that yeah. uh, that's affecting everybody. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and it's it's like cheap entertainment. I mean, you know, there's not a whole lot there. <laughs> You know, other than and uh, you know thrills and oh my god, I can't believe they just fucking did that and you know it's like watching the Real Housewives or some shit. But wait a minute, but isn't in a in because I haven't read Dan Brown either, but I know like I've seen bits and pieces of those movies and there's like the 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 weird like um, culty Christian uh, you know subculture where the the guys are like whipping themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah. the the common thread is is uh, masochism, sadomasochism. There you go. Yeah, the, the, that's the the theme here. You know, Fifty Shades and and Dan Brown's books. Uh, Just the, you got tell, some masochism. Going I was going to say to all you aspiring writers who are listening, if you want your book to be a hit, you know, people better be getting whipped. 
<laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I thought I thought about that years ago. I was like, man, I I I like the books I write, and I I, I just kind of want to make. Uh, for me, it's like art, you know. Um, but like maybe I should just write like a Bigfoot like porn, you know, novel. Like just sa- to like, make like, some like, like Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah, like you know, <laughs> someone. There's a market for that, I'm sure. Yeah, I've never heard. Is Bigfoot porn a thing? Uh, it can be. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> it was just. It was just actually born right, right here, seconds ago, like on this podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, maybe I'll make it a thing. So, so temporal uh, is just about to drop, uh, and then what other? Like, the, how many books have you published? Uh, three before the new one. So, uh, yeah, four. Okay, and you're 32, so that's a pretty good. It's a yeah. pretty good run. You've been busy. Yeah, yeah, it's been a crazy last few years. Do you feel like you're getting better at it? I do. Um, you know, I always. I, I, I'm sure every writer does this, but you know, I always want the next thing to be better than the last. So I actually put more into it. You know, um, every time. Uh, of course, that's not really up for me to say. People might go, oh, "This is shit." I like the other book, but this one is, you know. But you know, at least I know uh, I gave it all I had, so it counts for something. Do you get Do you get caught up in reviews or anything like that? Are you a writer who reads his own reviews? Um, I, I don't get caught. I'm not like obsessed with them, but yeah, I've checked them out. You know. Um, uh, thankfully I haven't been torn down too bad, but well, okay. Um, Here's a question for you. You talk about writing pretty close to the bone, you know, you've written a novel yeah. that's pretty like autobiographical, uh, right. fiction. Uh, one of the quandaries that I've been faced with is like, man, you write a character who's pretty much yourself and then you put it out there. Like what if everybody hates this character? <laughs> then it's basically an indictment of of you or of me. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. I, and, and then like I'll read uh, either first person fiction or first person nonfiction, and and no matter how honest a person is 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 trying to be or is on the page, like it is a presentation of self that is crafted. And yeah. I notice how people, even though even when they're being like super honest like there's it's almost like it's, oh that's cool like wow that's so raw and honest but it's presented right. in such a way that it's like hard to hate them and i worry right. that like maybe sometimes like the the way that i'm representing things on the page it's like easier to hate them <laughs> do, you, do you know what i'm saying like like it's yeah. it's a big it's a big challenge like how do you be true to life and authentic emotionally and then you also want people to want to be on board with that character, that person. And uh, I find that kind of vexing at times. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I kind of – I'm of the opinion like you don't have to, to uh, necessarily like the character if the character is compelling enough, you know? Um, of course, I do tend to like books where I, I – can kind of identify some, you know, part of myself in a character, but that's not necessarily like if, if it's interesting, if the character is interesting, <laughs> like I'm all in, you know, whether they're a shit bag or not, you know, um, yeah. I, I, I love Dennis Cooper's books and I 
can honestly say there's not a whole lot of uh, good people in his books at all. And, uh, you know, but they're compelling, right? You know, it's, it's an interesting read. Yeah. And, I'm, uh, I'm, but I've, I've talked like, and I guess there's some, fir- is it some first person stuff? Like I haven't read all of his yeah. stuff, but, uh, yeah. it's like, it just strikes me that like, man, people are very skilled. Like some writers are very skilled at presenting themselves in fiction in a way that is both, honest i'm not saying they present like some scrubbed version of themselves right i'm just saying that they present themselves in a way that like makes them very hard to dislike somehow like more likable than they probably actually are yeah or like cooler or something it's like it's just <laughs> I, it, I don't know it's like it's like a skill that like i guess i need to to acquire or, you know so like a, a muscle i need to strengthen in my own work because I think that maybe there's a tendency that might be tied to my Catholic upbringing toward, um, you know, being self, uh, deprecatory or whatever. And uh-huh. you do too much of that on the page and maybe it, it winds up having like a, a wearying effect on the reader. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't want to be around a person yeah. who's like, who's, uh, you know, constantly cracking jokes, jokes at his own expense or Right. I, I don't know. It's it's a it's a curiosity to me, but I'm always paying attention to that when I'm reading first person stuff, uh, yeah. especially stuff which like feels really honest. But I'm always like, what did they leave out? And like, what did they right. add? And like, why did they choose these details? Uh, some of it is aimed at like trying to seduce the reader. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, well, yeah, and I, I honestly, it, you know. Uh, my first book, Wichita Stories. I mean, like, it, I, I'm, I'm guilty of that. You know, like, I, I left some things out on purpose. It's like I don't want to make myself look too bad, you know. But it's also really honest, you know. At the same time, so it's hard to, uh, you know. You if pay- I left in all the shit where I'm just whining and complaining about stuff, you that's know? that's it, my it, problem. That's my problem right there. <laughs> well, you know. That's what editors are for, you know. Uh, I guess, yeah. I need a lot of them. I need a, I need a team. I need to bring in a team. Uh, well, listen, man. It's good to uh, connect with you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk. It's been fun. Yeah, man. It's been great. Thanks for having me on. And good luck with your chihuahuas. And uh, and and you know, congrats on the new book and and with whatever comes next. All right, man. Thanks a lot. All right, folks, there you have it. That's Troy James Weaver. His new novel is called Temporal, available now from Disorder Press. You can find Troy online. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at T-Weave, T-E-A Weave. uh, I think he's on Goodreads. He's got a Tumblr. You can track him down. And then uh, you can also check out Disorder Press at disorderpress.com. Thanks to the uh, Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the uh, theme song music for this program. What we're listening to now is uh, Cigarette Royalty. Uh, somebody, a uh, buddy of mine gave me some tracks a while back. It was just like, yeah, here, these are royalty free. There's like all this confusion because Kill Rock Stars made its music or some of its music available for uh, no charge. Like, there was no royalty concerns. They they expressly said this on their website, which is why I used it, because there's always royalty issues with uh, podcasting. But then they changed their website and took down the uh, the disclaimer or whatever, and I don't know if their policy changed. So I hope it's okay. I love Stereo Total. I love Kill Rockstars and uh, Cigarette Royalty, too. 
That's what you're listening to right now. I have no problem giving credit. Isn't it good for podcasts to use music? Get the word out? I don't know. So anyway, uh, thanks to everybody who chimed in on Twitter, saved me at the last minute, gave me something to talk about in the monologue. I feel a little bit uh, self-conscious about the fact that I didn't know what pegging was. I feel a little bit self-conscious about the fact that I have uh, reverted to my vice of having wine with dinner. Did you hear that sound? That, that means there's somebody at my front door. I get a, I get a sound when somebody shows up in my house. (laughs) 